Kings chapter 18. Uh, if you do not have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can find one uh, directly under your pew. Uh, and if you use that, it will be on page 380. Again, that is 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'll be beginning in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. This is the reading of the word of God. In the sports world, when we talk about sports fans, I found, at least from personal experience, when you ask someone, uh, what's your favorite team? They answer with several teams' names. So, for example, if you ask someone their favorite football team, oftentimes I've found they name at least two football teams' names. Oftentimes they have their reasons. Maybe it's because their spouse likes the one team and their dad likes the other team. Maybe it's because they are both in the same state that they live in. But for whatever reason, they claim to have two or more, in some cases, favorite teams. I often give people a hard time jokingly, uh, because really, I don't think it matters too much. But I say, you can't be a fan of both. You have to pick one. But I would say where the real problem lies is when someone claims to like two rival teams. If someone claims to be a fan of, if you know basketball, the Celtics and the Lakers, or Maybe if you know football, if someone claims to be a fan of both the Eagles and the Cowboys, you know that just doesn't go in the sports world. If you know anything about those sports, you know that these teams do not like each other and they are rivals, to say the least. So to be a true fan of the one, you must agree to certainly not like the other. Today we're going to take a look at the life of Elijah, and Elijah is dealing with, I'd say, the same type of concept but on a, of a religious level. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're looking at a very familiar passage. Uh, if we think about the stories of the Bible, I'm sure this is one that the kids are taught at a very young age. Uh, this is one many know. But I, I believe it's very rich. And I believe in our day and age, um, it's very relevant, the message that we get in uh, the things that are going on in Elijah's life and with the people he's about to interact with. So our passage 
fully as 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 40. Had Ben just read a little bit of it just to give us a sampling, but we're going to be going verse by verse, passage by passage through this text to see what this story says and to see what message we can get from it. So let's begin. The first thing we see starting at verses 17 through 18 is that both Ahab and Elijah, that's King Ahab and the prophet Elijah, are accused of being the troublers of Israel by each other. I'll read again verse 17. It it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So this passage gives us the background for our text this morning. It introduces to us Ahab and Elijah. So we have Ahab accusing Elijah to be the troubler of Israel, and Elijah accusing Ahab of the very same thing. He accuses him of being the troubler of Israel. And I ask, why does each do so? So we'll begin with Ahab and his accusation against Elijah. The reason that Ahab did so is found a chapter before, in chapter 17, we see Elijah declared there would be a drought as an act of judgment against Ahab and his kingdom. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, if you look with me there, says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord of God... As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall, neither, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. So Elijah goes to Ahab, and he declares this drought against this king's kingdom. In response to this, Ahab searched relentlessly for Elijah. As 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 10 reads, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord, that's Ahab, has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. So Ahab sees himself as in the right and Elijah as in the wrong. He has no right to do such a thing, to cause this suffering among him and his kingdom. He has brought this trouble and hardship on the kingdom of Israel. So Ahab, he sees him as the troubler of Israel because of this drought that Elijah has been sent from God to proclaim, and it ultimately happened. Second, why does Elijah accuse Ahab of being a troubler of Israel? The answer is found right in the text. So if you look back at chapter 18, verse 18, it says, And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house. And here it is, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So, Ahab and his people have left the decrees and the instructions of the Lord, and instead they did what they wanted to do, and they lived how they wanted to live. This ultimately was to replace the Lord with a man-made idol. They worshipped and followed him as if he was the Lord. If we look back at 1 Kings chapter 16, and specifically verses 29 through 33, we get a little bit more information on King Ahab if you're not familiar with him. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29 reads, In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, 
the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal, and in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So we see right here, Ahab was the most wicked king, the most evil king up to that point of the kings of Israel. This was not only Ahab, but there was a long line before him that did the same kinds of things. As verse 18 of chapter 18 says, And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house. So Ahab was born to a long line of kings. He was born, born to royalty, but it was a long line of disobedience and rebelling against the Lord. Certainly, this is no excuse for Ahab, but he was surrounded by this wickedness, this evil in his family. The leader over the whole nation of Israel, God's chosen people, was wicked, corrupt, ignored and hated the commands of God, and instead followed his own passions and desires. This is why Elijah calls him the troubler of Israel. He could say, the troubler is by no means me, it is you. You have brought this drought on yourself. I am only an instrument, the messenger to bring God's wrath upon your hideous sin in this kingdom of wickedness. So this confrontation between Elijah and Ahab and their being at odds with each other shows the blindness of those who do not have a relationship with God. While there is surely a purpose and a plan for what is going on, and in this case to bring judgment upon Ahab and his evil kingdom, and ultimately we're going to see in this passage that the glory of God, the one and true and only God, is given. This gives us some context as we go into our passage. So I'd like to start right off with the main focus or the main message of this passage, and it's, it's simply this. Elijah seeks to bring honor and glory to God by declaring and showing him to be the one, true, and only God. Elijah seeks to bring honor and glory to God by declaring and showing him to be the one, true, and only God. And that last part's important, as we're going to see very soon. So let's work our way through the text and see what it builds up to. So first, we see that Ahab actually obeys Elijah. If you look with me, Back at our passage, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 19 through 20, it reads, Now therefore send and gather all Israel. So this is Elijah speaking. He says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 400 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. As you read through this, this, these two verses, a question might come to mind. Why would the king of Israel, the one who, who's over all the people, who's an enemy to Elijah, why in the world would he obey him at this time? As I, as I was reading through this passage and first start off, this question came right to mind. And I think, I think the context is key here. Consider what we've already seen has taken place within this story. Of Elijah so far. There's been a drought for three plus years. The people are surely struggling to get food and water. People may be even dying off. They may be hurting. Ahab is willing to do this, I believe, to listen to Elijah in hope of relief from this drought. He's hoping if he obeys Elijah, this drought's going to leave. He's going to get rain. There's going to be relief. 
It's not like he's, he's all of a sudden submitting to the Lord. We move on. Elijah confronts the people. Starting at verse 21, I'll read to verse 22. It says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So Elijah here is literally asking the question, where does your allegiance lie? Who are you truly devoted to? And here within this story, we're introduced to these people, but we have three different types of people that we've seen so far. We have Ahab, who we've just looked at. Ahab, he's in complete rebellion against the Lord. He, he worships the Baal. Now we're introduced to the people in these, in these two verses. They worship supposedly both. They worship both God and Baal. Elijah, Elijah worships only God. So far we've seen him as nothing but a devoted servant and one who has an unhesitating obedience in every matter. So the focus here in these two verses are the people, what is their relationship to God? One in which they are sometimes following God and then other times following Baal. And I'd put quotes around following. Can you really follow one God while you're following another? Can you really intermix religions and still be faithful to them both? Don't they call for a singularity of faith and belief in them and them only? This is what I was getting at in the introduction as we, we thought about sports teams. But the same questions asked here could be asked here in this question. Can you really intermix or follow two different gods? We're going to see that Elijah is calling out the people for their lack of devotion and faithfulness to God. Rather than serve him only, they have chosen to get, up, get caught up in serving several gods. When we look at the implications of this passage at the end, we're going to consider how the people's mindset is not far different than some people's today. We're going to look at some specific examples of how this same dynamic is at work today in some people's minds. Verses 23 through 24 get to Elijah's test. Elijah, we're going to see now the remainder of the time till we get the result, we see a test that Elijah proposes to the prophets of Baal. So here's what the test involves. Here's the guidelines. So I'll, I'll read verses 23 through 24 with some, some numbers of what they're to do in this test. Number one, let two bulls be given to us. Number two, let them choose one bull from themselves. Number three, and cut it in pieces. And lay it on the wood. Number five, but put no fire to it. Number six, and I will prepare the other bull. Number seven, and lay it on the wood. Number eight, and put no fire to it. And then nine, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. So Elijah sets out the guidelines for this test, and, and simply he's having them make a sacrifice to their God. We receive the purpose of this sacrifice. Verse 24. It says, And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Interestingly, somewhat of a side note, both these gods were known as those who were associated with fire. If we think about the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, you could think of the burning bush, how he appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He appeared in a cloud of day to the Israelites as they were on their way out of Egypt, 
in a pillar of fire by night. You consider Solomon's dedication of the temple. Fire fell from heaven and consumed Solomon's sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord is said to have filled the temple. So we see that in the Bible, in Israel's history, God had, in one sense, showed up with fire in the past. But outside the Bible, we also see that this supposed God, Baal, this idol Baal, was also known as being the God, and he was worshipped as the God who controlled both fire and lightning. So both gods should be able to complete this test, supposedly. This test is a test to find out who is the true God. Are they both? Is only one? Or is it neither? We see that the test is accepted. If you look with me at the, the latter half of Verse 24, it reads, And you call upon the name of the Lord your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So the people say, essentially, this sounds good to us. So they move on to this test. Verses 25 through 28, we see the prophets have a supposed advantage. Here's what the advantage is. Verse 25, it reads, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of, the, name of your God, but put no fire to it. So in this test, the prophets of Baal seem to have a few advantages going their way. Number one, Elijah allows them to go first. He gives them a head start. What if their God answers first? Then he would have no chance. The second supposed advantage in this test, in this sacrifice, is that they are many. We're told that many of the prophets are there. Hundreds of prophets of Baal are on site, while Elijah, he's only one. Surely the majority would be right. And then three, from the context of their location, this was Baal's home turf. This was a central place of Baal worship. Surely Elijah's God, even if he was real, couldn't penetrate another God's territory. So three supposed advantages. We're going to see how those work out for him. Verse 26 answers, what is Baal's response? Verse 26, if you look with me there, reads, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. So very simply, Baal's response is one in which he did not respond. Verse 27, we see Elijah humorously picks at the prophet's worship. Verse 27 reads, And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is amusing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So Elijah here goes on to speak of their God in a very human way. He questions, could Baal just be using the bathroom? Is that why he has not answered? Could he be away at the moment? Is that why he hasn't answered? Or could he be snoozing and taking a nap? Elijah is seeking to show how absurd it is that they worship and serve a God who does not answer. He is seeking to show that this God is no God at all. And as I was thinking about this passage, I thought about us, and we'll turn to us for a moment, but I thought about what are the implications for this or of this for us as we think of Elijah um, going against the prophets of, the ba of Baal. 
Should we talk about others' religions in a demeaning manner? Should we make fun of those who follow Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism in this same mocking way? A.W. Pink says, and he explains Elijah's actions as this. He says, the absurdity and the fruitfulness of their efforts richly merited this biting sarcasm. And I'd answer this simply in this way. I believe we must consider how bad it had gotten as to why Elijah would do such a thing. The people had completely rebelled and refused the truth of worshiping the God of Israel. They were marked with a defiance to obey the truth of the word of God, so Elijah is seeking to show them simply how foolish it is. Simply put, I'd say, no, we shouldn't talk to people about their religions in this, in this way. Um, though certainly we need to stand against that they are not, not true. We need to oppose them that the truth and the truth only is one true and only God. Verse 28 shows the prophets revert to extreme behavior. As verse 28 reads, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And we see the result in verse 29. It reads, And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So we see the prophets did not give up. They continued and they continued all day long. But the results are plain and simple. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. There was no response whatsoever. Baal, their God whom they worshipped and sacrificed to, who they created, a whole religion around, who they refused to worship God solely because of, has no response for them in this crucial test. Baal does not answer. Ultimately causing us to conclude he is no God at all, but there is more. Elijah needs to complete the test now. If his God does not answer, are both their gods not real, or are they both asleep? So as we turn to Elijah completing this test, consider the main idea of this passage again. Elijah seeks to bring honor and glory to God by declaring and showing him to be the one true and only God. Verses 30 through 35 show us Elijah's supposed disadvantage. So the prophets seem to have an advantage, and we see ultimately it does them no good. Now Elijah seems to have a disadvantage. All right, but first we're, uh, we're reminded of Israel's apostasy. Verse 30 reads, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. We see there's a reminder of God's work in Israel. As verse 31 through 32 says, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar to, in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as wood contained two seas of seed. And now this is where we get to this supposed disadvantage. In verse 33 and then 34 we find it. It reads, And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and poured on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So what does he ask for, or why does he ask for a disadvantage? 
simply that this will show that the response that he receives could be explained by nothing else but a working of his God. Elijah is seeking to clear all excuses and explanations that would be contrary to the honor and glory going to God. And I personally think that this also shows how great Elijah's faith really was. He's setting up for this test, and all he would have to do is pray and ask God to send down fire, but he makes it seem even harder in dumping water onto this, this altar. And if you've ever went camping before, you know wet wood does not make for a good fire, and, and sometimes it could be even maybe impossible to light wet wood. And Elijah has buckets of water dumped onto his altar. Then we come to Elijah's prayer, and we find two things in specific from it. First, we find that he's ultimately praying for the glory of God. As it reads, And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. And then secondly, we see it's ultimately for the sake of the people. As he says in verse 37, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So I think a simple application for us is may Elijah's example be an, an example to us. Elijah had a burning zeal for God and others, to see God glorified and others to find a relationship with God. And I think it's, it's a really good challenge here um, and addresses a temptation that we could easily fall into looking for our own success, our own work, our own service to God and being preoccupied with this, but we see that ultimately Elijah is an example that in our service to church, it's not an in, end in, it's not an end in itself, but ultimately praying that God would glorify, uh, glorify God and others should be edified. Verses 38 through 39 show us the result of this sacrifice. It reads, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Surely Elijah's God, the God whom he proclaimed amongst many opposers, whom Elijah had great faith in, he answered. In contrast to Baal, who did not answer. And we see the people respond in worship. They respond in a way that they should. That they should. But let us not think this is inevitable. We could in one sense question, is this genuine? Isn't this inevitable if such a miracle would happen? And we could just think of several examples in the scriptures, such as Pharaoh and the plagues of Egypt. Amazing thing, ha things happened all around him, and he ultimately did not turn to worship the Lord. So this certainly is not an inevitable thing, especially as we see from Elijah's prayer, he gives credit ultimately to the Lord for changing their hearts. As he says in verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So I think this is a challenge us to not take anyone's salvation lightly, no matter what age, young or old, no matter their circumstances, May we always be amazed at the grace of God and his work in their life. And then we come to the conclusion of the passage. First Kings 18.40, we see the prophet's destruction. 
as it reads, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So we see these prophets of Baal are killed so that they will never lead the people astray again. So as we conclude this passage, I'd like to wrap it, wrap it up by making two points or, or one main point that, that connects this passage with the day in which we live. And again, before I do that, I'll remind you of the main idea, the main thrust of this passage, which is Elijah seeks to bring honor and glory to God by declaring and showing him to be the one true and only God. So just as much as Elijah seemed to have dealt with it, so too more and more today, many are seeking to intermix other religions and or accept other religions as a means of salvation. I'll give you a few examples. Recently, actually this past week, I, I was reading several true stories or testimonies of those who professed to be Christians but were seeking to worship and practice the Buddhist religion. Another example of this is at the same, or uh, it's very similar to that, but there are those who would seek to say that all people, no matter what their religious beliefs are and lack thereof, will be saved. So no matter what they believe, everyone's going to be saved. Another similar one, but a little different, is that there are those that claim that just so someone is faithful to their God, no matter what religion it is, just so they have a God, they're faithful to it, not necessarily being the God of the Bible, they can be saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, though they aren't necessarily serving him. I believe we're dealing with the same thing that Elijah was dealing with hundreds of years ago. Those who are seeking to make the line completely hazy between the worship of the God of the Bible and other religions. I believe that Elijah is an ex excellent example of one who is bold, who stands fast, and is not willing to compromise or fold to the pressure of another religion, but to stand firm and to declare the one true and only God. And I challenge, I challenge you this week to do this with those who you work with, those who you go to school with, those who are in your family. Ask them about their beliefs. Hear what they believe in. Get to know what they believe in, but at the same time to stand firm in what you believe and share and explain the God you believe in, the one true and only God. So as we close, may Elijah, may we as Elijah did be concerned with the honor and the glory of God to declare and proclaim no matter how outnumbered we are, no matter if all people are against us, to proclaim the truth that God is the one and only true God. May we hold firm to this always. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the stories in the Bible and, and for the truths that they relate to us. And, and God, I pray for this message, very clear from this passage, that you are the one true and only God. And Lord, um, as we thought about this morning, there are many who would seem to confuse, be confused that there are many religions that ultimately lead to salvation, Lord. But God, you are very clear in the Bible that this is not the way. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand firm. Certainly not be disrespectful or aggressive, but Lord, help us to stand firm in this truth and our worship of you. 
Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in whatever situation we're in with whoever we're talking with. And Lord, I pray that in one sense you'd help us to speak the truth in love, but Lord, help us to hold fast to it. Help us to worship you and serve you only in all that we say and all that we do. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for being a powerful God, for being our only God. And Lord, we, we thank you for all that you do for us. And in your name I pray, amen.